Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob and reading today from the final message in Charles Spurgeon's collection of sermons on sovereignty. This is called Providence. Now you say we already studied Providence the last time. No, this is a different Providence. This is the Providence as seen in the book of Esther. This was delivered November the 1st in 1874 at his Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington, London, England. Esther 9.1, though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. Well, you're probably aware that some persons have denied the inspiration of the book of Esther because the name of God does not occur in it. Uh, they might with equal justice deny the inspiration of a great number of chapters in the Bible and of a far greater number of verses. Although the name of God does not occur in the book of Esther, the Lord himself is there most conspicuously in every incident which it relates. I've seen portraits bearing the names of persons for whom they were intended, and they certainly needed them, but we have all seen others which required no name because they were such striking likenesses that the moment you looked on them, you knew them. Well, in the book of Esther, as much as in any other part of the word of God, and I had almost committed myself by saying, more than anywhere else, the hand of providence is manifestly to be seen. To condense the whole of the story of the book of Esther into one sermon would be impossible. Therefore, I must rely upon your previous acquaintance with it. I must also ask your patience if there should be more of history in the sermon than is usual with me. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable, whether it be history or doctrine. God never meant the book of Esther to lie dumb, and whatever it seemed good to him to teach us by it, it ought to be our earnest endeavor to learn. The Lord intended by the narrative of Esther's history to set before us a wonderful instance of his providence, that when we had viewed it with interest and pleasure, we might praise his name and then go on to acquire the habit of observing his hand in other histories and especially in our own lives. Well does Flavel say that he who observes providence will never be long without a providence to observe. The man who can walk through the world and see no God is said upon inspired authority to be a fool. But the wise man's eyes are in his head. He sees with an inner sight and discovers God everywhere at work. It is his joy to perceive that the Lord is working according to his will in heaven and earth and in all deep places. It has pleased God at different times in history to startle the heathen world into a conviction of his presence. He had a chosen people, to whom he committed the true light, and to these he revealed himself continually. The rest of the world was left in darkness, but every now and then the divine glory flamed through the gloom as the lightning pierces the blackness of tempest. Some by that sudden light were led to seek after God and found him, Others were rendered uneasy and without excuse, though they continued in their blind idolatry. The wonderful destruction of Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea was a burst of light, which startled the midnight of the world by giving proof to mankind that the Lord lived 
and could accomplish his purpose by suspending laws of nature and working miracles. The marvelous drama enacted at Shushan, the capital of Persia, was intended to be another manifestation of the being and glory of God, working not as formerly by a miracle, but in the usual methods of his providence, and yet accomplishing all his designs. It has been well said that the book of Esther is a record of wonders without a miracle, and therefore, though equally revealing the glory of the Lord, it sets forth in another fashion from that which is displayed in the overthrow of Pharaoh by miraculous power. Well, let us come now to the story. There were two races, one of which God had blessed and promised to preserve, another of which he had said that he would utterly put out the remembrance of it from under heaven. Israel was to be blessed and made a blessing, but of Amalek, the Lord had sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. These two peoples were therefore in dead hostility, like the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between whom the Lord himself has put an enmity. Many years had rolled away, the chosen people were in great distress, and at this time, far off, there still existed upon the face of the earth uh, some relics of the race of Amalek. Among them was one descended of the royal line of Agag, Agag, whose name was Haman. And we might say Haman, I'll, I'll give you the typical American way. And he was in supreme power at the court of Hasuerus. Uh, some people think that is Xerxes. He was the Persian monarch. Now, it was God's intent that a last conflict should take place between Israel and Amalek, the conflict which began with Joshua in the desert to be finished by Mordecai in the king's palace. This last struggle began with great disadvantage to God's people. Haman was prime minister of the far-extending empire of Persia. He was the favorite of a despotic monarch who was pliant to his will. Mordecai, a Jew, in the employment of the king, sat in the king's gate. And when he saw proud Haman go to and fro, he refused to pay to him the homage which others rendered obsequiously. He would not bow his head or bend his knee to him, and this galled Haman exceedingly. It came into his mind that this Mordecai was of the seed of the Jews, and with the remembrance came the high ambition to avenge the quarrel of his race. He thought it scorned to touch one man, and resolved that in himself he would incarnate all the hate of generations, and at one blow sweep the accursed Jews, as he thought them, from off the face of the earth. Well, he went into the king, with whom his word was power, and told him that there was a, a singular people scattered up and down the Persian Empire, different from all others, and opposed to the king's laws, and that it was not for the king's prophet to suffer them. He asked that they might all be destroyed, and he would pay into the king's treasury an enormous sum of money to compensate for any loss of revenue by their destruction. He intended that the spoil which would be taken from the Jews should tempt their neighbors to kill them, and that the part allotted to himself should repay the amount which he advanced. Thus he would make the Jews pay for their own murder. 
He had no sooner asked for this horrible grant than the monarch conceded it. Taking his signet ring from off his finger, he bade him do with the Jews as seemed good to him. Thus the chosen seed are in the hands of one Agagite, who thirsts to annihilate them. Only one thing stands in the way. The Lord has said, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. We shall see what happens and learn from it. First, we shall learn from the narrative that God places his agents in fitting places for doing his work. The Lord was not taken by surprise by this plot of Haman. He had foreseen it and forestalled it. It was needful in order to match this cunning, malicious design of Haman that someone of Jewish race should possess great influence with the king. Well, how is this to be effected? Should a Jewess become queen of Persia, the power she would possess would be useful in counteracting the enemy's design. Well, this had been all arranged years before Haman had concocted in his wicked heart the scheme of murdering the Jews. Esther, whose sweet name signifies myrtle, had been elevated to the position of Queen of Persia by a singular course of events. It happened that Ahasuerus, at a certain drinking bout, was so far gone with wine as to forget all the proprieties of Eastern life and sent for his queen, Vashti, to exhibit herself to the people and the princes. Well, no one dreamed in those days of disobeying this tyrant's word, and therefore all stood aghast when Vashti, evidently a woman of right royal spirit, refused to degrade herself by being made a spectacle before the ribald rout of drinking princes, and refused to come. For her courage, Vashti was divorced, and a new queen was sought for. We cannot commend Mordecai for putting his adopted daughter in competition for the monarch's choice. It was contrary to the law of God, dangerous to her soul in the highest degree. It would have been better for Esther to have been the wife of the poorest man of the house of Israel than to have gone into the den of the Persian despot. The scripture does not excuse, much less commend, the wrongdoing of Esther and Mordecai in this acting, but simply tells us how divine wisdom brought good out of evil, even as the chemist distills healing drugs from poisonous plants. The high position of Esther, though gained contrary to the wisest of laws, was overruled for the best interests of her people. Esther in the king's house was the means of defeating the malicious adversary. But Esther alone would not suffice. She's shut up in the harem, surrounded by her chamberlains and her maids of honor, but quite secluded from the outside world. A watchman is needed outside the palace to guard the people of the Lord and to urge Esther to action when help is wanted. Mordecai, her cousin and foster father, obtained an office which placed him at the palace gate. Where could he be better posted? 
He is where much of the royal business will come under his eye, and he is both quick, courageous, and unflinching. Never had Israel a better sentinel than Mordecai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. A very different man from that other son of Kish who had suffered Amalek to escape in former times. His relationship to the queen allowed him to communicate with her through Hatak, her chamberlain. And, and when Haman's evil decree was published, it was not long before intelligence of it reached her ear. And she felt the danger to which Mordecai and all her people were exposed. By singular providences did the Lord place those two most efficient instruments in their places. Mordecai would have been of little use without Esther, and Esther could have rendered no aid had it not been for Mordecai. Meanwhile, there is a conspiracy hatched against the king, which Mordecai discovers and communicates to the highest authority, and so puts the king under obligation to him which was a needful part of the Lord's plan. Now, brethren, whatever mischief may be brewing against the cause of God and truth, and I dare say there's very much going on at this moment, for neither the devil nor the Jesuits nor the atheists are long quiet, but, but this we are sure of. The Lord knows all about it, and he has his Esther and his Mordecai ready at their posts to frustrate their designs. The Lord has his men well placed and his ambushes hidden in their coverts to surprise his foes. We need never be afraid but what the Lord has forestalled his enemies and provided against their mischief. Every child of God is where God has placed him for some purpose. And the practical use of this first point is to lead you to inquire for what practical purpose has God placed each one of you where you are now? You've been wishing for another position where you could do something for Jesus. I do not wish anything of the kind, but serve him where you are. If you're sitting at the king's gate, there's something for you to do there. If you're on the queen's throne, there would be something for you to do there. Don't ask either to be gatekeeper or queen, but whichever you are, serve God therein. Brother, are you rich? Well, God has made you a steward. Take care that you are a good steward. Brother, are you poor? Well, God has thrown you into a position where you'll be the better able to give a word of sympathy to poor saints. Are you doing your allotted work? Do you live in a godly family? God has a motive for placing you in so happy a position. Are you in an ungodly house? Then you are a lamp hung up in a dark place. Mind that you shine there. Esther did well, because she acted as an Esther should, and Mordecai did well, because he acted as a Mordecai should. I like to think, as I look over you all, God has put each one of them in the right place. Even as a good captain well arranges the different parts of his army, and though we do not know his plan of battle, it will be seen during the conflict that he has placed each soldier where he should be. Our wisdom is not to desire another place, not to judge those who are in another position, but each one being redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus should consecrate himself fully to the Lord and say, Lord, 
what would you have me to do? For here I am, and by thy grace I am ready to do it. Forget not then the fact that God, in his providence, places his servants in positions <clears throat> where he can make use of them. Secondly, the Lord not only arranges his servants, but he restrains his enemies. I would call your attention particularly to the fact that Haman, having gained a decree for the destruction of all the Jews upon a certain day, was very anxious to have his cruel work done thoroughly. And therefore, being very superstitious and believing in astrology, he bade his magicians cast lots and that he might find <coughs> excuse me, a lucky day <coughs> for his great undertaking. The lots were cast for the various months, but not a single fortunate day could be found till hard by the close of the year. And then the chosen day was the 13th of the 12th month. On that day, the magicians told their dupe that the heavens would be propitious and the star of Haman would be in the ascendant. Well, truly, the lot was cast into the lap, but the disposal of it was of the Lord. See you not that there were eleven clear months left before the Jews would be put to death? And that would give Mordecai and Esther time to turn around, and if anything could be done to reverse the cruel decree, they had space to do it in. Suppose that the lot had fallen on the second or third month, the, the swift dromedaries and camels and messengers would scarcely have been able to reach the extremity of the Persian dominions. Certainly a, a second set of messengers to counteract the decree could not have done so. And humanly speaking, the Jews must have been destroyed. But oh, in that secret council chamber where sit the sorcerers and the man who asked counsel at the hands of the infernal powers, the Lord himself is present, frustrating the tokens of the liars and making diviners mad. Vain were their enchantments and the multitude of their sorceries. The astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators were all fools together, and they led the superstitious Haman to destruction. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, nor divination against Israel. Trust ye in the Lord, ye righteous, and in patience possess your souls. Leave your adversaries in the hands of God, for he can make them fall into the snare which they have privately laid for you. Notice attentively that Haman selected a mode of destroying the Jews, which was wonderfully overruled for their preservation. They were to be slain by any of the people among whom they lived who chose to do so. And their plunder was to reward their slayers. This was a very cunning device, for greed would naturally incite the baser sort of men to murder the thrifty Jews. And no doubt there were debtors who would also be glad to see their creditors disposed of. But see the loophole for escape which this afforded. If the decree had enacted that the Jews should be slain by the soldiers of the Persian Empire, it must have been done, and it is not easy to see how they could have escaped. But the matter being left in private hands, 
the subsequent decree that they might defend themselves, these Jews, was a sufficient counteraction of the first edict. Thus the Lord arranged that the wisdom of Haman should turn out to folly after all. In another point, also, we mark the restraining hand of God, namely that Mordecai, though he had provoked Haman to the utmost, was not put to death at once. Haman refrained himself. Why did he do so? Proud men are usually in a mighty tiff if they consider themselves insulted and are ready at once to take revenge, but Haman refrained himself until that day in which his anger burned furiously and he set up the gallows. He smothered his passion. Before then, I, I marvel at this. It shows how God makes the wrath of man to praise him, and the remainder he doth restrain. Mordecai must not die a violent death by Haman's hands. The enemies of the church of God and of his people can never do more than the Lord permits. They cannot go a hair's breadth beyond the divine license. And when they are permitted to do their worst, there's always some weak point about all that they do, some extreme folly which renders their fury vain. The wicked carry about them the weapons of their own destruction. And when they rage most against the Most High, the Lord of all brings out of it good for his people and glory to himself. Judge not providence in little pieces. It is a grand mosaic and must be seen as a whole. Say not of any one hour, this is dark. It may be so, but the darkness will minister to the light, even as the ebon gloom of midnight makes the stars appear the more effulgent. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah there is everlasting strength. His wisdom will undermine the minds of cunning. His skill will overtop the climbings of craft. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. Well, next time we'll notice that God in his providence tries his people. We'll do the second half next time around. I am so glad when you can be here and share with me these wonderful messages of this wonderful Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.